Our scripture reading this morning is from the chapter 9 of Luke. I'll be reading verses 51 through 62. You'll find the reading on page 868 of the Pew Bibles. Luke 9, 51 through 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first and go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, please open your Bibles to that very passage, Luke chapter 9, and verse 51. And let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we call upon you to bless the work of your hands today, to bless your church, the church that belongs to your son, Jesus Christ, to build Christ's church today by the word of God, by the spirit of God, build the church today. So move in our midst, open our eyes and ears to hear and see and make us to be a church that follows Jesus and make our hearts glad. I pray for that in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen. I was a champion chocolate salesman <laughs> raising money for my high school band, my junior high and high school years. Uh, my record stood for, for years until it was broken by a little girl who cheated. Uh, <laughs> she, she, that's another story, but she had, she put her, she got her parents to get her chocolate in all these retail stores. I was knocking on doors, you know. But the chocolate was expensive, but it was really good. Uh, and I, I learned something about people from that experience. There were people who just said no. And they usually said no because it was expensive chocolate, as I said. Back in that day, it's so long ago, you could buy a regular chocolate bar. They were pretty big back then at the drugstore for a dime and I was selling a slightly smaller chocolate bar for 50 cents. Actually, I was selling them two for a dollar. That was my thing. Uh, <laughs> I sold twice as many that way. But some people just said no because it wasn't worth the price to them. The dollar was more valuable to them than the chocolate. But there were people who said yes. And they had a different view about the price. These were people who were excited about our high school. 
and about our band. They were supporters of the program. They wanted to be on the team. And so they didn't look at it as expensive chocolate. They looked at it as a chance to promote our band. And what's more, I get a little chocolate out of it too. They didn't see it as a cost. They saw it as an opportunity. So with them, I never had to apologize for the price of the candy because seeing the big picture clearly made it plain they were the ones getting something out of the deal, never mind a couple of dollars. Now, in our passage of Scripture, as we resume making our way through Luke after all this time, Jesus is advancing his kingdom. He's advancing the kingdom of God. He's sending out the kingdom message of salvation. He's calling people to follow him. And as he calls them, he tells them that following him is expensive. There are cheaper things to do with your life. And many people will reject Jesus' offer, we're going to learn. But the ones who have been made able to see the big picture of Jesus' call to follow him can see that they're the ones getting something out of the deal. Never mind a little hardship or sacrifice. They want to be on the team and they are ready to follow urgently. So now, I'm wondering about you this morning. Are you somebody who has heard Jesus call to follow him? I'm wondering if you're somebody to whom it seems that the price of following Jesus has gotten to be a little bit high for you. Are you tempted to turn back or to turn aside? Our passage can help you see the big picture clearly and help you remain ready to follow Jesus and never mind a little hardship or sacrifice. It can even help you to be excited about the whole thing. And if you're somebody here today, you've never heard the call to follow Jesus, this very passage of Scripture has the potential to change your whole life today. So I'd be excited about that if I were you. If you're listening, now the theme of the message is, I put it on that outline in your bulletin is, The kingdom of God comes near in gospel proclamation. And those who are blessed by God to see it, receive it in faith. They urgently follow Jesus at all costs. Now let me put this passage in its context. Pastor Mitz did a kind of a summary overview of Luke's gospel to remind us where we are and where we've been. We're jumping in at chapter 9 verse 51. If you look on the opposite page, the opposite side of that outline... You can see the overview outline of the whole book. And you can see we're in, if you scroll down to chapter 9, verse 51, we're in that section that's kingdom teaching rejected. You could call it the Jerusalem travel section if you wanted to, or the kingdom on the move. Because starting in this section, Jesus is resolutely traveling to Jerusalem in order to go to the cross. So the backdrop to what we're seeing here in our part of chapter 9 is just a couple things earlier at the end of the other section. In chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, you don't have to turn, but it says, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this, what had just happened, to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he called his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. So he plainly revealed his mission to them. Going to Jerusalem, going to be killed there, 
going to be raised. And then at, in, drop down in chapter 9 to verse 44 and 45, he reiterates it plainly. He says this, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But it says they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. So after all that, a little more happens. And then it says in verse 51, where we've started reading, Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he sends messengers ahead of him, as Bruce just read. They went into a village of the Samaritans, and they didn't receive Jesus. They didn't want to receive Jesus. The disciples are supposed to make arrangements. Now, why did the Samaritans want nothing to do with Jesus? Well, it's because of the long-time feud between Samaria and the nation of Israel. The Samaritans were descended from Israelites who lived in what used to be the northern kingdom, the ones who got exiled in the north under the Assyrians. And they were, during that exile, these were the stragglers who stayed home in Israel. And then they ended up intermarrying with the Gentiles. And so what came out of that was this half-breed race, and they developed their own half-breed religion. They're half-Israelite, half-Gentile. Half-breed religion. They had their own version of the Bible. They only had the first five books. And they built their own temple on their own mountain for their own sacrifices. If you remember Jesus interacting with a woman at the well in John's Gospel, she was a Samaritan woman, and remember, she's the one he offered living water to. And she brought up the fact, what are you talking to me for? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. What's that all about? And, and then she said to Jesus, she reminded him of the conflict. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to worship. And so Jesus reminded her that salvation is from the Jews before he told her that he was going to change everything about how you worship God anyway. So these Samaritans here in Luke 9, they don't want anything to do with Jesus because they don't want anything to do with the salvation that comes from the Jews. They don't want anything to do with a man who set his face to go to Jerusalem. They don't want a salvation that's based on the sacrifices that are taught by the Jews. And they don't understand at all that Jesus is about to fulfill all of that teaching. That the true sacrifice in Jerusalem is about to take place. The final sacrifice. They don't know any of that. But I, I don't want you to miss something obvious here about these Samaritans not receiving Jesus. Jesus is to about, about to accomplish a salvation that is for the whole world. And that's why when the disciples say, hey, they didn't re reject you. Why don't we just call down fire and judge them right now? And Jesus said, no, no, he rebuked them. Don't, don't think that way. Because Jesus is going to accomplish a salvation that's for all the people. It's even for Samaritans. It's for Gentiles. It's for, it's for everybody. This wasn't the time for judgment on sinners. Judgment on sinners would have to come at the cross first. It would have to fall on Jesus first. So there's still coming a day when Jesus will rain down fire, but it wasn't that day. So they moved on. Now you pick it up in verse 57, again, where Bruce already read. And we see not only the Samaritans rejecting the Jerusalem agenda, but we see some others rejecting Jesus' urgent call to costly following. He encounters three random people there in verses 57 to 62. The text is deliberately vague about who they are. There's some guys. 
So the first one offers to follow Jesus as a disciple. He wants to join the growing entourage following Jesus. But Jesus warns this guy very knowingly. His comment about no place to lay his head means this. To follow me, Jesus says, is to identify with me and to live as I live. And you need to know I live as a person who has no home in this world. Animals are more at home here than I am, Jesus effectively says. I, I live a hard life of deprivation. Are you sure you want that? He says, in other words, you say, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I'm just asking you, do you know where I'm going? Do you know where I'm going? No, we don't actually know what happened with that guy. But Jesus warned him. He wasn't sure he was ready to accept that cost. Now, the second person, it says Jesus called him to follow him. Uh, but this man has a counteroffer for Jesus. Uh, he, he wants to go and bury his father. That just sounds so reasonable. <laughs> it's very reasonable. And I think you need to read this literally. Some haven't tried to interpret it, interpret it a little more metaphorically like my, my parents are old. Let me wait till my parents die and I'll follow you one day. I don't think it's that. I think it's just what it sounds like. My father has died and there are arrangements to be made. And you should know that in his culture in particular, I mean it's true everywhere, but it's in particular the case in that day and time in that culture that burying a parent was a very high social and moral obligation. It's not something a duty you could neglect lightly at all. Even some of the traditions of the Jews of the day would... Uh, some of the writings suggest that men were societally exempted from other duties while they were working out the burial arrangements for dad or mom. They didn't have to say the Shema and do other things, according to the, the tradition. So it was unthinkable to leave this duty behind, but Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, you know, I don't think you need to interpret that as Jesus saying, leave the spiritually dead to mind the things of the dead. I don't think you need to call it that. I just think he's saying, there's other people to worry about that. You need to follow me because this is urgent. You got to follow me right now. Somebody else can take care of that. You got to leave even that. Behind, if you're going to follow me, it's urgent. It's going to cost you walking away right now. now. I want you to take note that following Jesus is equated with proclaiming the kingdom. Did you see that when, when Bruce read it? He said, uh, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus said to him, follow me. Now he says, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Those things are equated with one another. Well, again, I think uh, all, this, all this is literal, and I think it happens again with this third person that Jesus encounters. He offers to follow Jesus, but he has a similar counteroffer. He says, let me first say farewell to those at my home. And, and Jesus has a hard word for him. He gives him that little saying. He says, uh, let me just pick it up right here, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, some people hear the word 
fit for the kingdom of God, and they freak out um, because they know, hey, we're all sinners. We, we can't earn our way with God. We're not pre-qualified to follow Jesus. The gospel's a free offer. Why, why talk about fitness? Of course, I'm, I'm tempted to simply say, why don't you ask Jesus? Why talk about fitness, Jesus? That's what he talks about. But the point is that the sons of the kingdom, the ones who enter in, they all prove to be of a certain desperate determination to have what God is offering in Christ. They can see the big picture and they know that this cost is no cost. There, there's, there's no comment here about how they come to be that way. This isn't a lesson about Jesus shopping around for the right kind of people. You shouldn't mix apples and oranges. Jesus isn't explaining the nature of justification by faith. He's calling people to be his followers. He knows he's calling sinners. This is a revelation of what sinners who come to follow Jesus must do and what they are enabled to do. It is a revelation, let it sink in, that anybody claiming to follow Jesus while not doing this is not really following Jesus. He's not fit for the kingdom of God. And be clear what the this is, the mark of fitness that's in view here, leaving everything behind in favor of following Jesus. It's holding nothing back. Now I think this saying invokes a memory from the Old Testament of the prophet Elijah calling the prophet Elisha. In 1 Kings 19, I don't want you to turn there, but the story is that Elisha was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen and Elijah, the main prophet, called him. He called him to become one of the prophets and to be groomed to succeed himself as the head honcho. This guy's going to later be taken up in a chariot of fire, you might remember. So Elisha said he wanted to go home and kiss his parents, and then he would follow. Sounds a lot like this guy. Let me go home and say goodbye to everybody. Um, and then, then he said he would follow. And Elijah, the head honcho, said, go back again, for what have I done to you? It's kind of enigmatic. But what happened next was Elisha went home. He killed the oxen he was plowing with. He burned the yoke. He cooked the ox. He fed everybody and said goodbye. And he scooted off after the prophet Elijah. Some of the commentators have said that the comparison here is that it's, it's a lot harder to follow Jesus than it is Elijah. Because Elijah lets you go home first and say goodbye. I mean, Jesus doesn't, doesn't let you go even go home. But I don't read it that way. I, uh, I, I think Elijah's response to Elisha was when he said, when he said uh, you know, what, what have I done to you is a way of him saying, look, it's not me that's calling you. I'm going this way. God's calling you. You figure out what you're going to do with God calling you. I'm off this way. And, and what did Elisha do? He went home and he burned his old life up. He went home. He signaled that there was no turning back. He said goodbye to his family, said goodbye to the old way, said goodbye to the old life, the old livelihood, burn it to ashes, and he set out right after Elijah. And that's what Jesus is calling disciples to do. Leave everything and follow me, Jesus says. And, and pointedly, anybody who will not leave everything is not following me. He's not fit. For the kingdom of God. Now, we, we press on into chapter 10 and we see 
the kingdom coming near with its message of sin. We call that the kingdom coming near with its message of sacrifice, leaving everything. Now we see the kingdom coming near with its message of sin. Pick it up in chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read. You follow along. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, say first, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So now this commission of messengers is an expansion of the kingdom ministry. Jesus was, had already initiated. He sent out 12. Now he sends out 72 or 70, depending on your translation. The symbolic meaning, the, the translation problem is that are you following the, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament or are you following the Greek text of the Old Testament? Apparently, the number has to do with Genesis chapter, uh, wherever it is, I've forgotten. But Genesis 10, where the nations are listed, the, the descendants of Noah, and it turns out that there's 70 names there, or 72. The, the symbolism is easy. <clears throat> the kingdom salvation that Jesus is accomplishing is for all the people of the world. That's why he sends out the 72. So his instructions to him make several points, though. First, his messengers are supposed to go out in dependence upon God to provide for them. They go out vulnerable. They go out needy. They have to depend on other people to support them. They don't take any money. They stay where they can stay. They eat what people will feed them. They're really depending on the Lord. They're depending on the hospitality of the people of God to support them. And his messengers are identified with him and his kingdom. If you drop down to verse 16, which we haven't gotten there yet, but he says, and he's going to say, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him, him who sent me. But when they offer the peace of the kingdom, they are offering the salvation that Jesus brings. When a person receives their peace, they are a son of peace. That person, at the same time, receives the messenger of peace. And when somebody refuses to help the messengers, that person is also rejecting the kingdom offered, the peace of the kingdom, the salvation that's being offered. Uh, this illustrates the 
the, the priority of what we've learned in the Bible about the love of the brothers. Because you can't receive the kingdom's salvation and not receive the kingdom messenger. They're linked. The one represents the other. That's, that's why the ones who don't help these disciples are told, Hey, listen, we're dusting, the, we're dusting our feet off, but the kingdom of God has come near. They're saying... Kingdom of God is here because we're here preaching it. We preached it. We represented it. And you said no to it. But it was really here. You have to understand that the kingdom of God has arrived with the arrival of Jesus. The kingdom of God at this point in time is already there. Although it's not yet fully realized. And you need to keep in your mind that the kingdom is always wherever the king is. Jesus is there. The kingdom is there. There's more kingdom accomplishment to come. But the kingdom of God is already near. And that's what Jesus has been preaching in Luke all along and sending his men to preach. The kingdom of God is near. Now maybe you're puzzled about the content of their preaching. Because Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross. I think you can suss out the content right here. They're preaching that Jerusalem-oriented salvation that the Samaritans rejected. And I believe they're doing it verbally as well as symbolically. You can figure that out by continuing to listen to Jesus. Pick it up in verse 13 and just listen to Jesus. He's still in the same speech. It'll be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. These people who are rejecting the message, they're rejecting the signs that point to sin. Jesus is pronouncing woes on those cities that have rejected the kingdom salvation offer. The the basis of these woes and of saying that there are other cities who if they'd seen what you saw uh, would have repented. The idea is that they will have a more tolerable judgment than you because they didn't see what you saw. He says, if these notoriously wicked places had seen what you saw, they would have repented. Now, what did these people see? They saw the kingdom miracles performed by Jesus and by his, his disciples, his apostles. They saw the miracles. So what's his argument? How can you figure out what they were preaching from this? He says, I worked miracles in your presence, you did not repent. Now, why should somebody repent from sins? Because they saw a miracle. Have you thought about that? Why does seeing a miracle mean, oh, you should repent? It's because the miracles are testimonies to the message. They are illustrations of the salvation being offered. The miracles aren't the point. The salvation is the point. The miracles show what's wrong with people spiritually. Why they need saving. And they show who can help and save people. Namely Jesus. The miracles say 
The spiritually blind can be made to see. The spiritually deaf can be made to hear. The spiritually defiled can be cleansed. The spiritually lame can be made to walk straight. The demon oppressed can be delivered. The spiritually dead can be made alive. And the miracles say then by implication, you're blind, you're deaf, you're defiled, you walk crooked, you're demon oppressed, you're dead. But Jesus can fix you. Jesus can heal you. Jesus can make you alive. The ones made to see, the ones made to hear, the ones made clean, turns out they all repent from their sins. That's what they all do every single time. They turn from their sins and they follow Jesus because they've been made whole. So when you hear that these cities did not repent at the sight of the miracles, you understand they've rejected the message of the miracles, the message that the miracles accompanied. Salvation from sin. The message of turning to God in Christ. The message that says, follow Jesus, believe, and turn from your sins. That's what's being rejected. Now you pick it up in verse 17, and we'll see the kingdom coming near with a demonstration of power. Let's read in verse 17 and following. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus says, when he comes back, he hears the 70 come back, at 72 come back and say, the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, oh, I'm seeing Satan fall like lightning. It's a simple reference to the fact that in this kingdom advance, through gospel proclamation, Satan has lost his authority. He, he has fallen in an instant like lightning. He's lost it. He can't thwart what Jesus is doing. But Jesus is, is very quick to add, that's not the cool part to you guys, you kingdom messengers. Yes, the demons are subject to you. Yes, the devil cannot thwart what I'm doing. But he says, don't, don't rejoice in that. What did he say? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing to get happy about. Not that you have a little authority over the devil through me. But that God has written your name in heaven. You've been accepted. You've been accepted by him. And that acceptance by God and that disclosure, all of it is cause for great rejoicing. Because it, it affects even Jesus. Pick it up in verse 21 and keep reading. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus sees all these things going on. The devil falling like lightning and people receiving the kingdom message. And, and it's cause for enormous joy for Jesus. And he, he gives word, he voices it. He says, I'm thanking you, Father. I'm so happy that you have revealed these things to these people. It's thrilling to me that you've opened their eyes to see the kingdom message for what it is, the offer of life, the offer of forgiveness. Father, I thank you. I thank you for that, that you have opened eyes. It was your will. It was your grace to show this to people. And Father, I know that means I'm the only one that knows you. You're the only one that knows me. And so the only ones of them that can know you and me is the ones that I now show to in this gospel message. And I thank you, Lord, that you've put me in this place. I want to show them you. I want to reveal myself to them. And so I praise you for that. And he turns to his disciples and says, you should be happy. That's what blessed means. You should be happy. There's a lot of people that wanted to see what you see. They never got to see it. There's a lot of people who wanted to hear what you're hearing. They never got to hear it. Now, God's not blamable for that. God's not to be judged for that. But you should count yourself happy. You should count yourself blessed. That you can hear this stuff and see this stuff. Because it means you can have this stuff. You can have me. You can have the offer of life. You can have the forgiveness of sins. The cleansing from defilement. The forgiveness. The healing. You can have it all. What do you do with that? What do we do with that this morning? Jesus has got his kingdom on the move. A lot of people are rejecting it. But some are having it. I want to call on some of you today. To jump into the kingdom. To receive the peace of the kingdom while it's near. Some of you are people here today who sit in church, but you don't put your trust in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is near to you today. I say that on very good authority. The miracles of Jesus are on display in this proclamation. The picture of Christ's remedy for sin is in play in this gospel proclamation today. Because we're preaching to you that Jesus Christ can heal you from your sin. That's the message. It's a pretty big deal. And Jesus can do that not simply because he's God and he's powerful. That's true enough. But he can do that because of his sacrifice, because of his saving work. Jesus Christ deliberately went to Jerusalem to die on the cross to provide the remedy for your sins. By the predetermined plan and purpose of God, he took on himself the burden of our sins. He bore our sins bodily on the cross, the Bible says. He made himself the sacrifice 
for sins. All those other sacrifices in Jerusalem were pointing to this one. He bore the penalty that sin deserves. That horrible death. That separation from God the Father. Jesus suffered the hell that your sin deserves. You should have that clear in your mind. He bore the penalty. He hung naked on the cross, bearing the shame that you deserve. He had his skin pierced in the pain that you deserve. He shed the blood that you ought to have shed. He breathed his last breath, and it should have been you. And he went into the grave that had your name on it. That's the basis on which he offers healing. He took your disease of sin so he could give you his health. Jesus calls now upon all people everywhere to repent and obey the gospel. That is what Jesus does. Repent and obey the gospel. He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers the cleansing. He offers not just a clean slate, but a clean bill of health. Cleansing from defilement. He offers to transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That's the kingdom that has come near to you today in gospel proclamation. That's the offer of peace that's held out to you today, my unbelieving friend. And I'm just wondering, are you... One of the blessed ones whose eyes now see it. Are you one of the blessed ones to whom Jesus has now disclosed the Father? Can you see now that the cost of leaving everything to follow Jesus is no cost at all, but it's gain? Can you see that? So I'm asking you, will you have his peace? The kingdom has blown into this room. The peace of the kingdom is held out. Will you have it? Will you have that kingdom peace? Will you receive the gift of God today and be saved? You must believe. Nothing but faith will lay hold of this peace of the kingdom. You must believe. And your belief must be of the kind that moves you to turn from sin and follow Jesus. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. It must be of the kind that moves you to put your hand to the plow and not look back. Because true faith leaves everything and follows Jesus. It doesn't try to wiggle Jesus into an already full life. It leaves the old life behind and follows him. So I say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And what should the rest of us who have believed on Christ do with what we've seen and heard in Luke chapter 9 and 10? I say, accept the urgency of costly following. I suspect what I'm about to say is already painfully obvious. But let's not fumble here. We've got a powerful word from Jesus. Let's, 
Let's drink it all in. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's not be confused about what those words mean. Again, I say, it's never been the case that Jesus is shopping around for fit people to call into his kingdom. If that was what he was looking for, he'd never find any fit people. But let's not reject the plain meaning of his words. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Saying you want to follow Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. Following Jesus is a path that requires sacrifice and loss. There's no other way to follow him because the path of sacrifice and loss is the path that he's on. You can't dream up a path that you call following Jesus, which is actually an easy and costless path. Real following is a not looking back kind of following. And the other kind of following is not really following. Now I want to posit to you that looking back remains a present threat to those following Jesus. Even after some years of following him. I think the language of following is helpful for us in this respect. It captures the idea of being in motion, of being in a process. Following is not static. It's not something you did once long ago. Following Jesus remains in the present tense. And so looking back remains a present threat to be avoided. I think that image from the the story of Elijah and Elisha, which I believe is a deliberate allusion in Luke in Luke 9, I believe that's helpful. It's useful. That helps establish a mindset of all or nothing. Elisha killed the oxen. He burned the yoke. There was no plowing to go back to. That's a helpful image. Jesus calls us to burn the past and renounce the old life and go all in with him. We are now kingdom messengers, not fishermen and farmers anymore. We're kingdom messengers. But... I wish to warn you about the present threat. There is always present another option to pull at you. That's what I'm getting at. There's always another seductive alternative to following Jesus. And it's never more seductive than when following Jesus seems costly and hard. There there will always be people around you whose lives are easier than yours. They have more money than you do. They indulge more pleasures than you do. They live the life that you might have lived if you hadn't gone after Jesus. And now, so much time later, they have built something pretty nice for themselves. Aren't you a little bit jealous? 
Your life could have been easier if you didn't have to sacrifice all that money. It, it could have been easier if you had been free to chase some other priorities, couldn't it? You've lost some people along the way, haven't you? Because you're following Jesus and they don't get it. You've made yourself to be scornful in the eyes of many. In your workplace, haven't you? In our society, you have. In fact, you are increasingly being labeled as a great big hater. Because you continue to think that there is such a thing as sin that people need to be healed from by Jesus. Wouldn't it be easier to fit in? Wouldn't it be more comfortable to back off a little bit and not stand out so much? Wouldn't it be a bit safer to go with the flow? I mean, really. Now that you've gotten established as a Christian, couldn't you afford to put a little more energy into your job? Couldn't you afford a few more pleasures by this time and still follow Jesus? Does following Jesus really require you to be so completely different from everybody else in the world? Do only the fanatical Christians go to heaven? Can't you find a way to accommodate some of the other things that you love and that make you happy and still legitimately call yourself a follower of Christ? You, you know the answer to those rhetorical questions I'm asking, don't you? No, you cannot afford to look to your pleasures. No, you cannot afford to be like everybody else. No, you cannot afford to try to accommodate worldliness with your faith in Christ. Yeah, the people bound for heaven are seen as fanatics to the rest of the world. Yeah, they are. But I'm just asking you, can you hear how seductive all that is? Can you hear how reasonable all that sounds? It is Christ's call to radical following that sounds unreasonable. It's Christ's call to such black and white allegiance that seems unreasonable. I mean, following Jesus is great, but do you really have to let the dead bury the dead? Can it really be that urgent and that costly? Of course, the answer is yes. It is. You cannot afford to look back. You cannot afford to look back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you see it right, it's no cost. It's opportunity. But you've got to see it right. There's one more thing you can do. You can follow Jesus in rejoicing that you've been made to see. Jesus got really excited. Overflowing with joy, the way the text puts it. When he heard, that, when he heard back from the, 70, the 72 who were sent out to preach the gospel... He was unspeakably happy about Satan falling like lightning, about people turning from sin to follow him, about the fact that all that happened because God made them able to see and he revealed to them the wonders of Christ's salvation. I'm simply saying to you, you are free to rejoice over the same thing. 
That is the cause of your joy. And nothing else is truly a cause of joy. Everything else that purports to give you joy is a counterfeit and a fraud. This right here is the real deal. Now, don't forget, right here in this passage, these days are not circumstantially happy days for Jesus. This thing about Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit has got nothing to do with what's going on in Jesus' life in the circumstances. He's right in the middle of being the son of man who has no place to lay his head's head unlike the foxes and the birds. He's still facing Herod, he's still facing Pilate, still facing Judas's betrayal, still facing the cross, still facing the grave and going there at his own rate of speed. Fast. The fact that he is legitimately and sincerely rejoicing right here is remarkable. And it's instructive. Jesus makes it instructive when in his joy he turns to his disciples and says, Blessed, happy are the eyes that see what you see. They see what Jesus sees. They see it in the same context in which Jesus sees it. All that hardship, all that sacrifice, all that leaving behind of other things is no impediment to the blessing and the joy at all. The cause of rejoicing is present and the joy is present. So I'm just calling on you to see the cause of your own rejoicing here in this passage and to rejoice. You have a real reason to be very, very happy in Christ. Not looking back is not a loss when you are looking at what makes you very, very happy. Christ's salvation, seen and received, is our cause to be very, very happy. So my brothers, my sisters, let's rejoice with Jesus because we've been blessed to see and to have Christ's kingdom. May God give us the grace to follow after Jesus urgently at all costs. And to be full of his joy as we do it. For Jesus' sake, let us pray. Thank you, Father, for these words of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this great salvation. Thank you for eyes to see. Thank you for faith to believe. Thank you for a Savior so faithful to go through with it all on our behalf. Thank you for the gospel of the kingdom. Thank you for these things. We ask your blessing on us. Make us happy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.